Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going back to Germany, because <laughs> that's the most important country in the world when it comes to cinema. Right, Will? Uh, no. And we're talking about <laughs> I'm Fritz pretty, I'm pretty sure America is still the most important <laughs> country for cinema. The most dictatorial director beside Eric von Stroheim? I, I got to tell you, I'm coming into this podcast uh, from from not a great point of view. I, of course, have had seen Metropolis. I'd seen M, maybe a few others. Fritz Lang is not somebody I've always admired him, but he's not somebody who I really lived with. Is and... it that the films, there wasn't that kind of attraction that the works of people like Hitchcock have for you? or uh, I guess. I don't know. Um, you don't have time for everything. So... This week was definitely, for me, an opportunity to get caught up with Fritz Lang in a way that I hadn't before. So I want to warn everybody that I'm not coming here from a position of expertise. So usually when people listen, they're like, Will's the one who's going to put Justin in his place because he knows everything. But Justin here was, you know, reading Patrick McGilligan's Fritz Lang biography all week. So I look forward to hearing some interesting facts from him. Put me on the spot here, Will. All right. I'm sitting here like we got a, We got a fire. It's story time. <laughs> and like just lay out Fritz Lang's life in a concise, precise fashion. Who is this man? Fritz Lang, when he was in Germany, was known as the blockbuster director. The Steven Spielberg of the German Expressionist. Yeah, he made what was called super films. These giant, sometimes five-hour productions that were the toast of the town. When he was making films in Germany, he was so famous that people would recognize him by sight when he was walking around. Probably because he had a hilarious monocle and sometimes an eye patch. Or did that come later? <laughs> that came later. But the monocle, he actually had to get rid of it in America because people said, you look too mean when you're wearing that monocle. You have to put glasses on. And when he was in Germany, he started being a screenwriter. He directed serial-type movies like The Spiders before moving on to films like Destiny and Metropolis and the big, giant fantasy epic, which I'm going to completely mangle its name, Die... Spielgergeifen? Geifen? Die Lady! <laughs> and these f films were like as massive as you can get. And the thing about Fritz Lang is he was known as a director that every little movement had to be controlled by him. Mm -hmm. He was known to throw fits of rage if a pile of oranges <laughs> was set incorrectly in the background. Now, he's made undoubtedly classics. M, Metropolis. They and, and for many people, the Dr. Mabuza films. And they go beyond their kind of... Like, you see people on the streets wearing Metropolis t-shirts. Or, like, Metropolis posters in dorm rooms and stuff like that. Yeah. But some of those films haven't quite uh, stood the test of time. First of all, I am not crazy about the approach you're coming at this with, because I think, even though I did not enjoy the one hour of the five <laughs> hours of Dr. Mabusa, yes. The Gambler, I watched... I know it has its fans. It has huge fans. I feel like the fact that I couldn't quite connect to it is probably my problem. No, I couldn't connect to it either. Okay. I found it pretty slow and languorous and kind of full of its own self-importance. Okay. Like a film like that. Dr. Mabusa, The Gambler. Okay. And the other reason that I didn't finish watching it is just because it's four and a half hours long. And I thought, okay, I could watch five of his American movies mm -hmm. or I can watch this entire German epic. Well, but I, I came here to praise Fritz Lang, not to bury him. <laughs> because... This week was tremendous fun for me. I was almost totally unacquainted with his American career, mm -hmm. so I watched five of his American films. I also watched The Testament of Dr. Mabusa and M, and I had a great time. Well, let's talk about uh, M right off the bat, right? Mm -hmm. So M is such a perfect movie object. Oh, yeah. Like from end to end. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I, the first time I saw M, I think I was actually in grade seven. It mm -hmm. was very early in my life as a uh, cinephile, if you will. 
Uh, I, I watched it. This is before they had the new restored version. So it was a really smeary, shortened VHS version, which was virtually unwatchable, but also almost kind of like added to the uh, creepy quality to it. When I was in seventh grade, I'd seen a lot of the like universal horror movies and stuff. So I definitely did not expect to be scared by an old black and white movie. And this is a movie that actually really unsettled me as a child. Like, I, I had bad dreams about it afterwards. Really? Yeah, it's something about it. I think it was just the kind of sense of, not exactly lawlessness, but the criminal underworld that it presented, and also just the unsparing blunt brutal way it depicted this child killer and the fact that there was nothing about the movie that offered you any kind of like hopeful reassurances no even at the end when they catch him and uh mm. seemingly put him to death we never see the final uh, verdict it never gives you that satisfaction and tells you like this is the yeah. right thing that's gonna there's happen. no catharsis no i think that the thing that impressed me the most about m is that a lot of fritz lang's movie when he was making these super films are usually have stories that are spread very wide over a large swath of like characters and so driving narrative is not always as clear as I would like it to be but in M each part is working so systematically in helping the other one so the movie which was inspired by an actual case in Germany Mm -hmm. uh, is about a child killer and the panic that he sets across Berlin the police are after him the mob is after him because because the police are so active they're affecting the mob's business so the mob wants to take him out and then even you know the homeless people are getting on board acting as allies basically all of germany is now under surveillance to find this child killer played by peter Lorre, most well known for being in looney tunes cartoons <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also you know casablanca the Maltese yeah you know Falcon. whatever those movies interestingly i heard that Fritz Lang cast Peter Lorre because he thought that Peter Lorre looked very innocent and people wouldn't expect him to be a child killer. He looks like the most child killer I know. person ever. He looks like the guy at the church group. <laughs> like throw on like a little thin mustache on him and yeah. you're good. Yeah, he looks terrifying. Something that surprised me on this viewing... Uh, is how little Peter Lorre is actually in the film. Really, he's kind of a spectral presence through most of the film or a structuring absence until the last 20 minutes. Where he finally gets this big speech. And he's amazing. It's just uh, like a really raw volcanic eruption almost. Which is a speech that's supposed to defend himself and he's like, I can't control what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. It's uh, almost impossible to talk about the films of Fritz Lang without also talking about his co-writer, who was his wife at the time as well, Thea von Harbu. So she came along and wrote almost all of his big films, uh, Mabusa, Metropolis, and she was always his partner in crime. She was always on set with him and she went every step of the way with all the productions that they made. And he left her behind when he fled to America because she was a Nazi. A few other things that I find kind of upsetting about the movie. uh, Fritz Lang has said that he wanted the audience to be kind of a collaborator in the killings. So you never really find out what the nature of Peter Lorre's killings are. I think we are to infer that he's also a child molester, but that's never spelled out. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear in the way that they kind of talk about it. Yeah, early on in the movie when uh, Peter Lorre kidnaps Elsie, the first child that we see disappear, uh, Lang shows a ball roll off and he shows her balloons caught in some electrical wire and then it just fades out. Also, I know it's kind of a cliche to say that like 
the city is a character <laughs> in a movie, but Berlin really is a character in this. There aren't, there's a massive cast of characters, but not many of them make an individual impression. You get the sense that Berlin is just this kind of like giant organism with a lot of moving parts. And this moves into, I guess, the other thing that's interesting about the movie, which is that it was coming at a time when the Nazis were coming into power. And you get a sense in the movie of, you know, this like crazy mob rule that can erupt. So Joseph Goebbels, um, Hitler's right hand man, his minister of propaganda, uh, was a huge fan of Am and most of uh, Fritz Lang's work. He actually said that he was really impressed with the way that Am at the end captured the feel of punishing bad people and the death penalty. When if you watch the movie, that is not what it's about at all. No. Although Am was eventually banned by the Nazis. Yeah, almost all of Fritz Lang's later movies were as well, uh-huh. including the sequel to Mabuse. Uh, the Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Mm-hmm. Goebbels liked F- Fritz Lang's work so much, actually invited him to be the kind of he- head of the Nazi Department of Film. Right. And according to Fritz Lang's telling, uh, Fritz Lang said to him, I'm not an Aryan. And Goebbels said, we decide who who is Aryan. Yeah. Now, and according also according to Fritz Lang's telling, he, like the next day, got on a train out of Germany, which has been disputed a lot. In fact, apparently Goebbels' diary doesn't even mention their no. meeting. But... So the thing about Fritz Lang is that like Edgar G. Ulmer, who we talked about a few weeks ago, he is known as a liar and fabricator of his own myth. Mm-hmm. Edgar G. Elmer actually hated Fritz Lang, who they supposedly worked side by side, Edgar G. Elmer claiming that he had done the sets for Metropolis. Which, if he did, bravo, but... (laughs) It's not very likely. (laughs) Fritz Lang, this story of kind of running away from the Nazis is something that was fabricated later on. So... But I believe that probably some version of this must have taken place because I know Hitler was a big fan of Metropolis. He was. He must have, even though it's an anti-authoritarian movie, he must have viewed, you know, the class discrepancy depicted in the film as being like the Jews and the well, underclass. Hitler loved the idea of the lower class uprising to take out the upper class. Right. But the weird thing about Fritz Lang is that he was never someone that was known to be political in any way when he was in Germany. Um, The Nazi movement was something that he kind of ignored. And there's actually some documentation that he tried to sidle up to the Nazis a little bit. Oh, really? Until they discovered that he had a Jewish heritage. Well, that's interesting because I think his movies are very political. Mm -hmm. I mean, The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, which was the movie he made right after M and was his last film in Germany, Dr. Mabuza, who we last met in an earlier film, a gambler, a a master of disguise, just like Dana Carvey, (laughs) a swindler, a con artist, a rogue. um, Just like Mordecai. Yeah, just like Mordecai. You see, you can see the influence of Fritz Lang on generations of filmmakers. Oh, film to start with Sam. But as the film opens, Mabuza is locked in a asylum for the criminally insane, and he dies, yet his spirit, or perhaps the idea of his spirit or maybe his henchman or somebody is still dictating orders on his behalf. Represented Um, as a scary ass ghost with bulging eyes and a a brain that you can see. And Fritz Lang meant this to be sort of a metaphor for the Nazis. At one point, Mabusa says, humanity's soul must be shaken to its very depths, frightened by unfathomable and seemingly senseless crimes, crimes that benefit no one, whose only objective is to inspire fear and terror. And then he says, the ultimate purpose of crime is to establish the endless empire of crime. I mean, this is supposed to be kind of a metaphor for the scare tactics that the Nazis were using or any sort of demagogue that preys on fear. So the Nazis did like the Testament of Dr. Mabusa, but the problem was they didn't like at the end 
that the heroes didn't defeat Mabusa completely at the end. <laughs> that there was a bit of, um, you know, open-endedness to the story, uh-huh. which is crazy. <laughs> you, you watched a Testament of Dr. Mabusa this week. Yes. Um, I, I, got, I watched it. I think it's a very interesting movie. I had a hard time with it. <laughs> yeah. I think an, an, uh, an early German talkie is always going to be a bit of a challenge. But th- this one, I, I think is interesting because of the time it was made and what it's saying about the times. But I think that structurally it has a lot to do with how M is structured, but in the Testament of Dr. Mabusa, I think it doesn't work quite as well. It doesn't have the focus that M has. There's even a detective character who, in the Fritz Lang extended universe, reappears in the Testament of yeah, Dr. He, Mabusa. Yeah, he's the original uh, View universe. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't have the kind of uh, machine-tooled precision that mm. M does. Uh, Testament of Dr. Mabusa is a lot sloppier. It has a lot of like main characters, and they're not all quite interacting in as perfect a way as you'd like them to. I mean, there's I some know. really good set pieces, like the opening yeah. when a guy runs away, and there's this whole set piece about a couple trapped in a room that they're going to die in a few hours. And I love the idea of Mabusa as this kind of spectral terror who may or may not exist. He, maybe he's just an idea. I recommend the movie, by the way. Fritz Lang returned to the character as his before last film in The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa. Which I'd be interested in seeing. It's like George Romero or somebody or like uh, the <laughs> his be- Land of or, the Dead or like the Before Sunrise uh, movies. <laughs> Checking in every couple decades on what Mabuza is up to. So, as I mentioned before, Theon von Harbu, his um, co-writer and partner in filmmaking, the reason that he kind of abandoned her was that they had already broken up by the time that he left Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. He caught her sleeping with another man, even though Fritz Lang was known as a adulterer to end all adulterers. Who are some of the people he had sex with? Uh, in America, Marlene Dietrich. Okay, so her, probably lots of other people. You yeah. Know, he's, uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad Fritz Lang was getting out there, you know. Fritz Lang, as Patrick McGillan underlines in his biography, loves sex, <laughs> even though the women in his life said he wasn't very good at it. Oh, that's too bad. Didn't you say uh, he, he said somebody had a tiny dick? Joseph von Sternberg, director of The Blue Angel. Ah, uh, it's too bad. <laughs> that he had a small dick? Yeah, poor guy. So Fritz Lang jumped on a train. He actually went to France first, where he directed... A picture called Lilium, which mm-hmm. is a romantic comedy. And was not a success. No, it was not. But it was one of Fritz Lang's favorite films mm-hmm. before going to America, where he jumped from studio to studio because he was so difficult to work with making films here and there. So what movies from his period you wa- did you watch? I watched uh, Ministry of Fear, The Big Heat, Secret Beyond the Door, Scarlet Street, and Woman in the Window. I watched The Big Heat of all the ones that you watched. Okay. I watched When Hangman Die. Uh, I watched The Return of Frank James, which is one of the rare color films that he made. And that's it. That's I'd, all the ones that I Okay, watched. I'd seen almost... and this I'd is seen a, Scarlet Street before. This is all, a small fraction of the movies he made in America. I, I thought this would be an interesting opportunity because my perception of Fritz Lang going to America, which I think is a pretty common perception, is that he made these great, huge, visionary movies in... Germany, and then he essentially made kind of B movies in America yep. and occasionally imposed his style, but you know, only to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's right. Having said that, I really enjoyed all the movies I watched. Well, and The Big Heat is un- it's incredible, un- undeniable classic. Yeah. But other than that, like, the thing about all the films he made in America is there was no big movie that you could hold up like Metropolis or anything like that. He was never given that opportunity and also undercut himself to a point that he could not get those opportunities. Well, let's talk about The Big Heat because it's my favorite of the American ones I've seen. This is Glenn Ford as a cop, a good cop, but he's up against, you know, just a massive crime syndicate. 
uh, in a town that is intertwined with the politicians. A big web of intrigue. I mean, I, I don't even want to describe the plot because it's so complicated, but it ends up with his wife being killed. It ends up with... The him get- going on a mission for vengeance the, against the, the people that killed him, it ends with including Lee Marvin. Who famously throws a pot of boiling hot coffee at the gangster's mole's face, mm-hmm. played by Gloria Graham, who's very good. So I think that like this movie, on the surface level, what people remember about it is how vicious it is mm-hmm. in the way that kind of events unfold. Like that pot of coffee, when you talk about the big heat, that's what people think of. It's not just the pot of coffee, it's the fact that it's Lee Marvin throwing it. Lee Marvin at his gruffest. Like there's a there's a fucking pungency to Lee Marvin as a screen presence that's like almost scary. Yeah, absolutely yeah. agree. But in trying to determine what Lang's presence on this movie is, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. Hollywood movies were not intended to be auteurist films Mm -mm. so you look at it and you think how much of this am i actually just imposing on the movie that isn't there how much of it was just in the screenplay it seems somewhat consistent with the themes that he was developing in germany specifically this idea of it being an evil corrupt world that's worth being paranoid about i mean one of the first american films that he made fury with spencer tracy you can see all of his like major themes in there like the mob Mm -hmm. and its destructive forces fate guilt which I didn't talk about, but before Fritz Lang uh, married Thea von Harbu, he was having an affair with her, and his current wife caught them together. And then mysteriously that night, she committed suicide with a gun. Oh my god. And that's something that's kind of haunted Fritz Lang since then, because people have tried to see, like, was it suicide? Did Fritz Lang murder her? Did... And murder is on the table in a lot of the texts that I read. Well, that's interesting, because then you look at an American film like Secret Beyond the Door, which is about a woman who marries a man who lives in a big spooky house, and she begins to suspect that maybe he wants to murder her, but then you find out he has this weird Freudian hatred of women that comes from his mother and maybe also comes from one of his one of his servants. The story has some echoes of Rebecca, but I mean, I don't know, like, am I just imposing something on the movie to say that maybe he channeled some of his guilt or some of his... <laughs> no, well, that appears over and over yeah. and over again in all of his cinema. So I don't think that's something that you're just pulling out of thin air. Mm-hmm. When you look at the way that his films in America were perceived, it was pretty lukewarm. It didn't have the kind of critical bombacity that his German pictures had. But you know who loved Fritz Lang? The French. Ah, our friends the French. Who they all- love yeah. Fritz Lang. Because what is more interesting than a big auteur to be brought to the level of just making cheap American uh, noir pictures? Well, as many people listening to this will know, uh, Fritz Lang played himself in Jean-Luc Godard's Contempt, playing a great film director, humbled to being uh, directing a schlocky movie produced by uh, a shitty producer played by Jack Palance. <laughs> the great Jack Palance. Yeah. I believe imitating Joseph E. Levine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The one thing interesting about Fritz Lang, when you talk about his style, he was compared to Hitchcock a lot, which Fritz Lang hated. Well, Fritz Lang is one of Hitchcock's favorite directors. He was an influence on Hitchcock. But then, I mean, when you look at his American movies, it's almost like he became kind of the poor man's Hitchcock. Like you look at Ministry what? of Fear... I, I, I don't mean that as bad as it sounds because I like Fritz Lang's American movies, but you look at Ministry of Fear and it feels like a Hitchcock, like wrong man thriller. Mm-hmm. I think that the thing about Fritz Lang is that kind of in your face style of Hitchcock had a lot in Lang's American films kind of took a step back. Well, the Criterion Blu-ray of Ministry of Fear has an interview with a scholar whose name I forget, but he makes the suggestion that 
in uh, Hitchcock's movies, it's all about kind of unmasking evil. Whereas in a movie like Ministry of Fear, good and evil are kind of intertwined and it's and it's very ambiguous and it's hard to tell who is good and who is evil. Uh, I mean, I guess you could apply that to a movie like The Big Heat, where the Glenn Ford cop character, he's a good cop, but he also like puts all the people around him in, in danger, in danger. Yeah. And just awful positions. Something that I touched on is that Fritz Lang was a dictatorial director. He was also very disliked. People hated him. He was not a nice man to work on set with. He yelled, he screamed, he emotionally abused people to get performances out of them. Uh, specifically, um, Henry Fonda worked with him on one of Fritz Lang's early pictures and later on said that it was one of the worst experiences he had in his life. And his performance would not have been any different if Fritz Lang had not told him when to blink and when to take uh-huh. a deep breath. Apparently, Peter Lorre, in that scene towards the end of M, when they bring Peter Lorre into that underground catacomb to have his mock trial and they like throw him down the stairs. Apparently, Fritz Lang made him do that take of being thrown down the stairs over and over and over again. And it was, of course, really painful. And then 20 years later, Fritz Lang wanted to work with Peter Lorre again in America and Lorre just declined. Yeah. And Fritz Lang was baffled. He was like, why doesn't he want to work with me? I I made him. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Uh, It was said that Fritz Lang was a man that forgot the bad things very easily (laughs) and only focused on the good times Mm -hmm. when he was not a giant asshole. So his career just kind of had a declining quality in America. He never really reached the productions that he did in Germany. He never reached that plateau, but he did go back to Germany to make some movies late in his career. The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabusa. And he also made the two-part film that was actually a remake of a film that his wife at the time in Germany had written, The Indian Tomb, Mm -hmm. which was a mixture of kind of like adventure and Indian mysticism. And I don't sense that it was particularly well-received. No, not really. Even though that in Germany, it's a huge hit, and I believe plays every year on New Year's or Mm -hmm. some holiday like that. It's become a Wizard of Oz type picture that's become a perennial. Anyway, I don't necessarily want to paint his career as a tragic one because I think that Obviously, it would be great if he could have kept making movies at the level of Metropolis or or The Testament of Dr. Mabuza in Hollywood, these giant super productions. But, I mean, it's great that he even got to make those movies at all. Yeah. He had a great... 10 or 15 year run of making amazing movies Yeah, he said that like when that. he worked at UFA, which was a studio that was producing his films, were the happiest days of his life. And then when you look at his Hollywood movies, I mean, there are, God, like half a dozen or maybe even 10, like really, really, really good movies. And then a lot of movies that are just competent decent movies I mean he made a quasi musical at one point which is hilarious because he's famous for never wanting to put musical in his films when they went to sound because he's like I don't understand music like I kind of feel like some of these Hollywood movies that I watched this week were sort of major discoveries for me and maybe I'm maybe I'm getting overly enthusiastic about his Hollywood career just because I hadn't seen (laughs) alright you cage cinema reading uh, I'm looking at the cream of the crop this week I I haven't seen some of the lesser ones but all the ones I saw I really enjoyed I thought it was great seeing Edward G. Robert as a total cuck in Scarlet Street. <laughs> yep, that's one of his most and, famous pictures. And as another loser in Woman in the Window. <laughs> Woman in the Window, by the way, have you seen it? No. Okay, it has the worst ending I've ever seen in my life. How the, does Woman in the Window end? Well, do, should, should, okay. Cover well, your ears if you want to go watch the movie, pause it, go watch it. I should it, say, I loved the movie up until the last two minutes when you find out, yeah, spoiler, spoiler, it was all a dream. <laughs> no. Yeah. The biggest cop out. Which is funny because Fritz Lang took credit for uh, bookending 
um, Dr. Caligari, the classic German expressionist film, he said that he wrote the It's All a Dream ending of that film. Oh, interesting. Another uh, auteurist motif, clearly. <laughs> so Fritz Lang uh, lived to be about 80 years old, was grumpy, went blind, died. The end. But he was also rediscovered by a younger generation of cinephiles. Important cinema club favorite Peter Bogdanovich wrote a book about his American films where he interviewed Fritz mm-hmm. Lang. Uh, there's an interesting documentary that you can see with William Friedkin interviewing Fritz Fritz Lang. It's available on the M Criterion Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. And you'll be able to hear Fritz Lang tell his bullshit story of fleeing the Nazis, but but in a very but tell it very well. <laughs> Fritz Lang, I just before- And of course Jean-Luc Godard worked yeah. with him. Fritz Lang, I have to say that one of his best friends to his dying day was Howard Vernon who was a German actor who appeared in a lot of Jess Franco films, often playing Dracula. Very nice. Well, Uh, we should uh, do a Jess Franco episode one of these days. uh, We will. We got to watch all of his movies first. That, you know, I've seen maybe 15 Jess Franco movies. Not maybe, enough. Maybe 20. The man made 180 films. <laughs> I mean, I don't even have a handle on his filmography. All right. What are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we're doing uh, one of the great directors, a director, I, th- I would say, almost on par with Fritz Lang. A director that you have brought up over and over again, being like, let's do it next. One that like, I've, no. I've been campaigning for this director for the entire time we've been doing this podcast, and it's Doris Wishman. Doris Wishman, the one of the only female directors of nudie films. Often referred to as the female Ed Wood, because, you know, in the interest of equality, I think they should have an Ed Wood, too. <laughs> But I love Doris Wishman. I mean, she, um, in her, I guess, incompetence, she developed a very coherent style. Yes. Um, And so we're going to talk about Nude on the Moon. We're going to talk about her classic sex change operation movie, Let Me Die a Woman, the The Glenn or Glenda of the 70s. The only horror film she ever made, A Night to Dismember. And probably a few others. She also worked on films with the great Chesty Morgan, who as you may be able to guess, was somebody with a monumental bust. Who, in the films, uh, she played a super spy, and sometimes she killed men by smothering them in her bosom. Yeah. Okay, before we go, I forgot the most important part of the Important Cinema Club. Letters! Oh, boy. So, I have a letter today from loyal listener Peter Koplowski. Ah, nice. I like when we get a letter from people we know personally. Unofficial Important Cinema Club guest because he was sitting on a couch once when we did an episode. We should have him when we do our 100th episode, Jackie Chan Spectacular. I feel like Jackie Chan Spectacular has to have multiple guests. I think we could have him, uh, Luke Koplowski, and maybe a few others. All right. And his letter is in response to our famed Santa Claus episode. He goes... You say Tim Allen's relevance faded since the days of the Santa Claus franchise, and particularly that home improvement has left no significant cultural footprints. Perhaps it is true that few still care for the fool man himself. (laughs) The fool man? But what about the grunt? Oh, like like tool man. Yeah. Okay, okay. we get it. A little play on words. Got it. How the people still clamor for the grunt with some going so far as to translate the game Doom into a cacophonous menage... Oh, my God. Menage a trois? <laughs> Menagerie of Menagerie. cool man grunting. Okay. Please play an excerpt as an example for your listeners. Actually, I think you should like have uh, some Tim Allen grunting as like, the fade-out music this week. Yeah, I, Peter actually raises a good point. I said that uh, Home Improvement has left little cultural footprint, but I have seen in the last few months, really. Or, it just recently, just right? A rise in, like, memes and stuff about the Tim Allen grunt. Like, there's that video that somebody made, all the grunts from Home Improvement, that I saw shared a lot. Uh, or who can forget, 
Um, All the times Tim Allen said, uh, wipe your teeth on my bones. Yeah. <laughs> In home improvement. <laughs> yeah. So that's true. It, it has started to get a little bit of uh, of uh, internet notoriety. And I, I just want more, honestly. Also, Peter writes, maybe do an episode on the history of Foley. That sounds like a lot of work. <sighs> I don't. <laughs> No. <laughs> uh, not the kid in the hall, Dave, but sound Foley. You can discuss Willem and how he screams. And, of course, the grunt. Hungrily yours, Santa Claus. Well, thank you, Santa. <laughs> um, I think we thoroughly discussed the grunt on a previous episode, but I would like to reiterate what I said on that last episode, which was there was a good episode of Inside the Actor's Studio in which James Lipton communicated to Tim Allen through grunts. And I don't know what we were talking about fully, like, this sound effect comes from this. This is what it feels like. Maybe if we had a fully person to discuss it, like, you could go, mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. Like 99% of moviegoers, I am like blind to the contributions of sound artists. Uh, I am aware <laughs> when a movie because is- you're deaf. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for the Important Cinema Club this week. My name is Justin McClue. I was Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. It's award season, Will, which means there's a lot of things that you have to keep track of, which include watching those award shows, and you can't wait to do it, right? Oh, yeah, sure. I did not watch the Golden Globes this year. What? I'm, I thought that was appointment viewing for you. No, I, I actually haven't seen the Golden Globes in a few years. And um, why is that? Because I think they're bad <laughs> and, and a waste of time. But, you know, like a recovering alcoholic, you know, I was, of course, like on my phone looking at Twitter all night see, seeing <laughs> oh, it unfold. You? So you like messaged me and I remember you going like, can you imagine these people that care the Golden Globes happening? And then you're like that, uploading Twitter looking for I know, like, I fucking can't help myself. <laughs> But I mean, the thing, the thing is that I, I do. What like, were you watching to, at that time? To, to the, uh, I was watching. Oh, I, I was watching for this podcast, Doctor Mabusa, the Gambler. <laughs> like, so, you know, maybe you can understand why I was checking Twitter. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, but you watch the Oscars almost religiously, right? I've seen every Oscars for the last twenty years. I think. <laughs> why? Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, I don't like it either, but it, it is like the Super Bowl of movies. And I mean, the Oscars, if there is one award show that is important, it's the Oscars. Not because they actually award good movies or anything, but just because it has an influence on what movies get made. Mm. I mean, you know, the the whole like fall winter movie slate is tailored around the Oscars. And if somebody wins an Oscar, that has a huge impact on their career. Um, and also it's just Cuba like, Gooding Jr. <laughs> it did have an impact on his career briefly. <laughs> he starred in, um, you know, Gay Boat or whatever it was called. Gay Boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Gay Boat. <laughs> I think it was Boat Trip. But I think its working title was, in fact, Gay Boat. I like that title better. It's a little more to the point. <laughs> But also, like, the Oscars is something that, like, you know, as somebody who enjoys movies, it's sort of fun to, like, sit around with all of America and watch a thing that is movie-related. And also... I don't follow sports, so the Oscars are a little bit like sports. And at least the Oscars, there's a pretty big pool of people that vote for movies, yeah. while the Golden Globes is like 87 people that are just randos. Hacks. Yeah. Like pe- bad journalists. Not Nobody you've even heard of. No. And, and also, like, the Oscars, you know, I, I'm not so jaded that I can't enjoy the sight of a bunch of, like, famous movie stars sitting in a room together, like, doing shtick. Yeah, but they do that in the Golden Globes. Like, you missed Sylvester Stallone and Carl Weathers get up on stage together which is important because for a long time they hated each other i didn't know that yeah they did 
That's why... Was it because he died in Rocky Four? I think that Carl Weathers held that grudge for a long time. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I do love that they apparently uh, played off Isabel Huppert in the middle of her speech <laughs> to let on these two aging lunkheads. <laughs> of course, I heard nonstop about Meryl Streep's speech. Yes. Uh, and you agree, right, that... <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that liberal Hollywood should keep their mouths shut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How many articles did you see pop up on your feed? Because you're not going to read them about that. Like, isn't that crazy? Well, like, uh, I mean, I, I think her speech should be, be like taken in the spirit of what it is, which mm-hmm. is just a small gesture against the normalization of Trump. Yes. And I like that she, at the end of her speech, said something about supporting a particular organization for journalist rights or something. I got a little tired of all these think pieces that came out the next day of like, why Meryl Streep matters or why Meryl Streep's speech is the first volley in the war against Trump. Trump or uh, for, for God's sake. Yeah, I mostly all I saw was that actors should keep their mouths shut, but said by people like Marky Mark. He said that? Yeah, he did. Oh, well, he's obviously a Republican, right? <laughs> and it's because all he does is star in like politically minded movies. Yeah, like. seriously. Well, I mean, one thing that is funny is, you know, the Republicans have all three branches of government now. I mean, they have the Republicans have not been in such an advantageous position in like a hundred years, and yet they're still so like any slight gets them so angry. You know, Donald Trump is... How dare you question the fact that Three Doors Down, Toby Keith, <laughs> and, I don't know, Miscellaneous are playing at the inauguration event. I, I mean, you know, why why is Trump angry at Meryl Streep? He's the president-elect. I mean, the guy should be the guy should be feeling pretty good about himself. I mean, let's get back on topic. None of this crazy political talk. So, I think that the best movie of the year, the Oscars, is going to go to Deadpool. Oh, God. <laughs> I think it's great that uh, Deadpool is getting nominations and Martin Scorsese's silence isn't. I think that that speaks to the spiritual emptiness at the core of our society right now.